Good morning. I'm Pastor Gillespie from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church and School, Sherman Center, Random Lake, Wisconsin. Good to have you with us here today for our Congregation of Prayer, a guide for daily meditation and prayer around God's Word. It's Saturday, April 2nd, 2022. Today being Saturday, we like to consider tomorrow's Old Testament and epistle, maybe the ones that we'll read or maybe the alternatives. Um, depends on the Sunday, depends on the mood I'm in on Saturday. All right. And that helps us prepare, um, especially as you maybe get to hear how the Old Testament reading interrelates with the gospel. Uh, sometimes the epistle relates to both, or sometimes it stands alone. Um, but ultimately, all of God's word is given, of course, for your edification and learning. And so it's best to uh, take the time to meditate upon it. And I'm most often preaching towards or from uh, the gospel text. All right. So let's begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Our psalm, uh, well actually it's our memory verse, but it's from a psalm, Psalm 118 verse 8, we say it together. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. Psalm 118 verse 8. Let's try it again. The last time for this week, right? It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. Psalm 118, verse 8. Our psalm for this week is Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. All right, one of two options for the Old Testament reading, Genesis chapter 22. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then, on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb 
for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Good. All right. Um, So why Abraham on Utica, the fifth Sunday in Lent? Well, it's because um, Jesus interacts with the, uh, the Jewish leaders in... Where is he? I'm looking at my notes here. It's in John chapter 8. Ah, here we go. Let's find my sheet that has all the readings on it. (laughs) It makes it easy for me. Uh, John 8, verse 46, right? Who convicts me of sin? The Jews answered him, we say you're a Samaritan. The Jews said to him, now we see that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never, never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? So we have this whole dialogue regards to Abraham. Right? and the faith of Abraham in particular. Uh, Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Right. So he's claiming to be um, God who appeared to Moses in the burning bush, God who appeared to Abraham and made great promises to Abraham. So it makes sense for us to have this reading then uh, from Genesis 22. The alternate is also... Um, it's also an Abraham reading. I think it's from uh, Genesis. Let's see here. No, that doesn't give me the alternate. This one give me the alternate? No. All right. Um, but regardless, uh, so we want to deal with the faith of Abraham. Luther, of course, has his monumental Genesis lectures, which are eight volumes um, in English. And he has something to say about the faith of Abraham here. So we should uh, see this. I think it will help. All right, the next question um, is usually considered at this point whether Abraham was justified, so we're talking about his faith, was justified on the basis of his works, as James argues in his letter, chapter 2, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Because the text says, now that I see that you are righteous, right? Now Now I see that you are righteous. Where does God say that? Yeah, right here. Uh, Oh, no, that actually comes in the next dialogue, maybe? Comes in verse 12. Now I know that you fear God. Ha, there it is. All right. Um, He wants to conclude from this that that previously Abraham was not righteous. Right? So, because now that I see that you have not withheld your son, it's suggesting that before he was not faithful, now he is. Right? But the answer which the words themselves point out is easy. For it is one thing, even grammatically speaking, to be righteous, and another thing to know that one is righteous. Abraham was righteous by faith before God, acknowledged him as such. Therefore, James concludes falsely that now, at last, he was justified after that obedience. For faith and righteousness are known by works, as 
by the fruits. But it does not follow as James raves, hence the fruits justify, just as it does not follow I know a tree by its fruit. Therefore the tree becomes good as a result of its fruit. Right? So first a good tree, then good fruit. Right? So he's, uh, I'm not sure that's exactly what James meant, but I think it's, uh, it's helpful. Remember James is disputed, it's a disputed book, um, and so we don't take doctrine directly from it. It has to be read in light of the rest of Scripture. All right. Um, Therefore, let our opponents be done with their James, whom they throw up at, at us often. They babble much, but understand nothing about the righteousness of works. All right. A righteous tree made tree by faith bears good works, righteous works. All right. Therefore, uh, oh no, we already read that. Indeed, even the sophists, those are people who just argue using reason, make a distinction between perceived being and substantive being. The righteous man does not become righteous by being perceived as such, but he who has been justified by faith, as was stated above about Abraham chapter 15, is perceived as righteous by the fruit and works. But one should also note in this passage that when Abraham is praised as one who fears and reveres God, the statement refers not only to his faith, but also to his entire worship, to the tree with its fruits, and as much as the Hebrews to as for the Hebrews to fear God is the same to worship God or to serve God, to love and honor God. We should say that again. For the Hebrews, to fear God is the same as to worship God or to serve God, to love and to honor God. Thus, uh, Psalm 14, verse 5, they feared where there was no fear. It is not speaking of dread because of because the ungodly have no dread. No, it is speaking of the worship of the ungodly. They worship God where he is not to be worshipped. Their conscience is seared, as Paul calls it in 1 Timothy 4, verse 2. That is, artificial or false, unreasonable, not natural, not true, as when the Pope forbids marriage and the eating of meat. Accordingly, the ungodly want to fear God, that is, to worship him, where there is no true worship of God. Right. So, when you try to worship um, God as he's not revealed in the scriptures, you will live in fear and in terror. Right? And you wonder why people are so fearful, um, not only of, of silly things like uh, viruses and, and their neighbor, but fearful of, um, well, ultimately death. Uh, it's because they have no fear or right worship of God who saves from death. Make sense? All right. So if you're scared, it's just because your, your, your uh, worship uh, is in the wrong spot or with the wrong God. Got it? Thus, when it is stated in Matthew 15, verse 9, in vain do they worship me with the precepts of men, this means the same as saying that they fear me in vain. For in Holy Scripture, the fear of God is the highest form of worship. Hence, Jacob, in Genesis 31, verse 42, calls the Lord God fear and awe. By this, he understands nothing else than the deity himself. Accordingly, the ungodly want to be reverent and humble. They walk with their necks bent and their heads shaking like a reed. They desire to appear to be fearing God above all men, yet they fear and worship in vain. This is truly a common evil throughout the entire world. Our fear, worship, and esteem equal the worship of the angels, Colossians 2 verse 18, but our conscience is false and seared. Thus the priests of Baal endured some extreme tortures. They pricked themselves with knives and awls until they bled, 1 Kings 18 verse 28, but those were self-chosen marks and not those of which Paul says in Galatians 6, verse 17, I bear the marks of my Lord. On the other hand, where fear should be greatest, the ungodly do not fear at all. Indeed, they are exceedingly bold in despising the true worship and treading the word of God underfoot. 
God should be feared nowhere except in his word, in accordance with the command, which says, you shall not worship strange gods, and you shall not make yourself a graven image, whatever it may be. See Exodus 20. Where God is revealed in his word, there worship him, there exercise your reverence. Then you are fearing where you should fear and tremble. It is for this reason that we tread underfoot the Pope and the sects who worship forms of worship outside and contrary to the word of God. We do not fear or respect them. They in turn condemn they in turn condemn the true religion and doctrine and call it heretical. Accordingly, they fear where there is no fear, and where they should fear, they do not fear. Up to this point, Abraham has made ready the sacrifice of his son, although it is not carried out, but was merely a preparation for the sacrifice. Right? So I think Luther is right here in talking about um, the the trust or the fear of Abraham. We're talking about um, what where did he put his trust? And it's in the promise, right? Especially as you see here at the end where he calls the name of the place, the Lord will provide. That was his faith throughout the entire, that's what he had going up on the mountain. The Lord will what did he say? The Lord will provide a lamb himself for himself, a lamb for a burnt offering. Verse eight. Um, he says to his servants, when they leave the servants, uh, we will come back to worship you, referring to both he and his son. He believes that God will provide for himself <laughs> the sacrifice. Maybe it's it's Isaac, but then it appears to me that he believes, Abraham believes that Isaac will be raised from the dead if the Lord does take his life. All right. Um, this is a pretty incredible story, isn't it? Talking about true worship of God. And this is one of the themes then um, about uh, where your fear, love, and trust ought to be, uh, which you see also in the gospel text, right? Um, they refuse to fear Jesus, and thus at the end, when he takes upon, when he confesses, I should say, the divine name, I am, they picked up stones to throw at him, because mm-hmm. their fear is in the wrong place. Not in God the Father, Son, and Spirit. Right. We'll see the same theme here in the epistle from Hebrews chapter 9. So we'll pick up on that. First, but Christ came as high priest of good things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason he is the mediator of a new covenant, by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. All right. Um, that we were going to sing not not all the blood of a bull, not all the blood of beasts, right? Which we sang last night. Uh, we were going to sing it uh, tomorrow to begin our divine service, but we have a baptism tomorrow. So um, I omitted the opening hymn. We sing uh, two stanzas of all who believe in our baptized as part of the baptismal rite. But um, this text is very important. It, it, it's certainly confessed in that hymn by Isaac Watts. Uh, but I'm going to share with you what um, Dr. John Kleinig has to say from his masterful Hebrews commentary. Um, we, you might remember talking about this text when we studied it on our uh, Wednesday evening Bible study stream, <laughs> or maybe you don't. Uh, so you can go back and check that out. Um, search for it on our YouTube page. It's probably easiest to find it there, uh, Hebrews 9. Listen to what he has to say, though, and I think this connects well with what we just heard from uh, Luther on 
uh, Genesis 22. This is a key text, Hebrews 9, for the theology and practice of worship in the Christian church. It shows how the divine service of the Holy Word and the Holy Meal differs from the worship of the Israelites and the worship of all other religions by its reliance on Christ and its high priest before God in heaven and his gift of a clean conscience through his blood. So what makes Christian worship different than all other religions, including um, even that of the Hebrews, is the reliance upon Christ as, as our high priest before God in heaven and his gift of a clean conscience through his blood. In all other religions, worship has to do with attempted rites of self-purification and contact with the divine realm by pure acts of devotion. In the divine service, the congregation receives a clean conscience from Jesus so that it can serve the living God with a good conscience. Right? So um, that's Luther's beef, I would say, with uh, the epistle of James, chapter 2, in particular, in t- saying that Abraham was justified by his works. Well, no, Abraham is justified by faith, which is a gift from God, not by works, correct? Yeah, lest anyone should boast, Ephesians. It is therefore significant that chapter 9, verses 11 through 14, we have through 15, um, is set as the epistle reading for proper 26 in series B of the three-year lectionary, and of course it's uh, here on Utica in the one year. On that Sunday, it is read after Deuteronomy 6 and before Mark 12. Both of these readings quote the Shema, the basic confession of faith in the Old Covenant, all right? Our God is one, right? Shema, one. Uh, Where did I leave off? Oh, yes. Which acknowledges that the Lord is the only God and calls on God's people to listen to him and love him wholeheartedly. That is, that says Jesus is the first and greatest commandment. Yet that kind of total and perfect devotion of the whole person to God is not possible unless the conscience has been cleansed from all impurity by the blood of Christ. Right? So there can be no true fear, worship of God, apart from the purification of the conscience, that is, the forgiveness of sins. So this text, um, Dr. Kleinick says, is best used to teach the congregation how to worship the triune God and why that is so important. Only those who have a clean conscience can approach the living God safely and profitably in the divine service. For without a good conscience, the Father's face is clouded. We heard that last night about the veil being lifted, right? His word is misheard and his gifts are abused. So without a good conscience, the Father's face is clouded, his word is misheard, and his gifts are abused. A guilty conscience regards God either as an indulgent grandfather or an angry judge. It mishears God's law as an impossible demand for total self-improvement or as a critical message of condemnation. It mishears the gospel as a sanction for sin or as an indiscriminate message of affirmation. It takes God's gifts as rightful entitlements or misuses them in self-indulgence. But the purpose of the divine service is to deliver a good conscience that enables God's people to approach him confidently, without presuming on his good nature or desecrating his holiness, in order to hear his voice and receive his heavenly blessings for their life here on earth. This teaching about Christ's gift of a clean conscience determines the structure of the divine service. The service begins with the recollection of baptism in the invocation and the rite of confession and absolution, or in our case tomorrow, with baptism right? Which you'll get to recall your baptism there in that way. So normally it's confession and absolution, which is just a renewal of baptism. The assembled congregation thereby receives a clean conscience so that it can serve the living God honestly and fearlessly, confidently and wholeheartedly with the assurance of his gracious acceptance of them. Since they have a good conscience, they can praise the triune God together with the angels 
hear God's word rightly as law and gospel, to enlighten and confirm their conscience, eat Christ's holy body and blood, and drink his cleansing blood, I should say, without desecrating these holy things, and receive God's blessing to equip them to serve him in their station and vocation. All that comes from their high priest Christ who cleanses them with his blood, redeems them from death for eternal life with God, and delivers good things from God to them in the divine service. The explanation of uh, chapter 9, verses 1 through 14, we only read 11 through 15, of the significance of the tabernacle, all right, so that comes before this reading, also um, shapes the architecture of our churches. Mm. So we didn't read it, but that's okay, I'll keep reading here. Their usual arrangement in two parts, the nave and the chancel, so the nave is the center part where you sit or stand, and the chancel being the altar area with the pulpit, lectern, etc., and font, um, reflects the arrangement of the tabernacle as the place for God to meet his people in grace. But there are two decisive differences between the tabernacle and the Christian um, sanctuary. On the one hand, the tabernacle's altar for the presentation of offerings, the table of the showbread, the incense altar, and the ark of the mercy seat all come together in one piece of furniture in the church, the altar, which combines the functions of all of these. So the, the presentation of offerings, the table for the showbread, the incense altar, and the Ark of the Mercy Seat. It is the place for the presentation of offerings and prayers. It is God's throne, the throne of grace, and the table for the holy meal. On the other hand, in the church, the holy way, the way from earth to heaven, is not blocked by a curtain as it was in the tabernacle. Instead of that, we have an aisle that provides the way for the congregation to enter the most holy place. So those who have been washed by the waters of, of baptism come to Christ's table to be sprinkled with his blood. His blood cleanses them entirely from all inward and outward impurity and ushers them into the Father's presence, the heavenly holy of holies, so that they can serve the living God together with angels and the whole communion of saints. Right? So I love what Dr. Kleinig does there. Um, it's been very influential on me. And thinking of the divine services always oriented towards um, being purified in conscience to be delivered unto the to the altar to receive um, the gift of the holy meal, right? And but then also the architecture of the church is leading up to that altar. Everything is pointing forward to the altar. You might have noticed that um, my practice is a little bit different, and I think it's under the influence of Kleinig and others, uh, maybe than pastors who come before. Is that we use the altar for the Lord's Supper? Right? That's its purpose. It is true that prayers and offerings can be altered there or offered there, and they are in the in the divine service. Um, but we're, if we're not using, if we're not in divine service, um, I tend to prefer that we offer our prayers um, from the lectern, right? So you've noticed this with the, with our prayer services. Same thing happens with like a funeral, right? Um, although weddings, I think I think maybe just for the photo opportunity of it, uh, we center ourselves around the altar. The um, why is this again? Um, because the the confession here is that that the table is is for the meal, right? And you can see the influence there. But even the whole service is is been guiding and leading you towards receiving Christ's body and blood. Uh, this is the other reason why, in my practice, you've noticed we don't if we're not having the Lord's Supper. We don't use a setting of the divine service. Um, it is true that um, the Lutheran hymnal the it was red usually or sometimes black, I guess, but. Um, the Lutheran hymnal offered the opportunity to have divine service without the sacrament at the end. Um, the The idea was that that would be a rare occasion when no one had presented themselves to receive the sacrament, that it could be uh, service could be celebrated that way. Um, 
But the assumption was is that if no sacrament was being offered, you would use instead a prayer office like the office of matins or vespers. Anyway, um, again, it's because the whole service is leading you towards the reception of the Lord's Supper, but then to not offer it um, seems counterintuitive or counterproductive even. All right. So think about worship um, throughout your day today, and I think uh, that will help you uh, be prepared to hear the preaching tomorrow. All right. Uh, We confess again our catechism for this week, the table of duties of civil government, Romans 13. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you, for he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Right. Uh, Let's pray the collect for this week. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, your mercies are new every morning, and though we deserve only punishment, you receive us as your children and provide for all our needs of body and soul. Grant that we may heartily acknowledge your merciful goodness, give thanks for all your benefits, and serve you in willing obedience. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. We pray this day for faithfulness to the end, for the renewal of those who are withering in the faith or have fallen away, and for pastors as they prepare to administer Christ's holy gifts, and also for receptive hearts and minds on the Lord's day. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. We pray this day with Marian, who celebrates her birthday. We pray for our households, especially that of Jodine, Stephan and Penny, Chris, Timothy and Kim, Marian, Zachary and Samantha. Pray for those ill receiving treatment or recovering, especially Marcella, Bev, Kelsey, Amanda, Dan, Brad, Timothy and Norm, Merlin, Jim and Mike. Pray for our homebound, Bev, Willis, Ed, Mickey and Paul. Uh, We do have a new mission uh, mary's house is that right i think so and we also pray for our enemies and persecutors for all this let us pray to the lord lord have mercy our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger. And I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. All right, we pray our, or we sing our hymn, I should say.
Hear my cry, my prayer, my plea. Make haste for my protection. For woes and fears surround me here. Help me in my affliction. that withstands each shock, my help, my life, my tower, my battle sword, almighty Lord, who can resist your power. With you, O Lord, I cast my lot. Faithful God, forsake me not. To you, my soul, commanding. Lord, be my stay and lead the way. Now and when life is empty. It's good to have you with us here today for the Congregation of Prayer, Guide for Daily Meditation and Prayer around God's Word. You can join us again tomorrow, 9.30 a.m. for Divine Service. We have Bible study and Sunday school afterwards. I usually have fresh coffee, delightful coffee, priorities, as Gus reminds me. Also, uh, some treats. And, uh, of course, you come for the Lord's body and blood, which is uh, the greatest treat of all, is it not? All right. Um, let's see anything else? No, I think that's good. So blessings on your day and we'll see you tomorrow.